are going to continue in our study called The Great Escape. Today is our 68th message in this series. We're going to be in Exodus chapter number 34, so get your Bibles ready, right? So last week, to give us a little bit of an update, right? So what happens, we saw God really, uh, Moses negotiating with God, uh, trying to ensure that God was going to come with them. And after he got that assurance from the Lord that God was going to go with them into Canaan, what we saw is that Moses made a special request, right? He was excited about what God had said. Hey, you know what? I'm going to be with you. And he asked to see his glory. We looked at what that actually meant last week and sort of that, what that promise was going to be. What we're going to see this morning is, and we move into chapter 34, is we're actually going to see that promise fulfilled as God is going to meet with Moses, but also he's going to give him some stipulations, some things that he needs to do prior to that meeting. And then our message today is called to worship him to worship him. Let's pray for this message that God will use it in a tremendous way. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much, God, for this day that we get to gather as a body, Lord. Even though we're gathered remotely, Lord, we are gathered as a body, as a family, as Hope Baptist Church, and I do praise you for that. Thank you, Lord, for the message that you've given us. Lord, as I prayed and and cried over this message this week, God, thank you so much for the way that you spoke to my heart. And God, I do pray in my request, and our request this morning, Lord, is that you will use your word Use your man of God, uh, Lord, that I might just simply speak what you would have spoken. Lord, I know that you've spoken to me, and I'm asking now, uh, Lord, that you will speak through me, that I might share truth, Lord, honest truth of who you are and, Lord, uh, who we are in your eyes. God, I pray that you'll bless this message, God, that you'll use it for your glory. God, speak to our hearts. Help us have ears to hear, uh, Lord, that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we said, uh, and I'm going to give you, again, every week we give you a little update, kind of make sure we're all ramped up to the same point, right? So Moses had received that confirmation from God that, hey, you know what? He's going to be going with them into the promised land. So he has that, that assurance. And in that moment of excitement, that moment of confidence, he makes that special request. Hey, man, he says, God, show me thy glory, right? Show me thy glory. Now, Moses doesn't realize what it is that he's asking for. He does not know that what he's asking for is actually impossible, Not that God was limited. Understand, God's not limited. It's Moses' flesh that's limited. Moses is in a human form, right? That human form has frailties, it has imperfections, and it has impurities. And if he were to be exposed to God's full glory, it would destroy him. It would kill him. So what we find is God loves his creation. And because he loves his creation, he wants to fulfill. But what will happen is he's going to give a partial fulfillment. He wants to allow him just to see a little glimpse of his glory, right? And what we saw in the message was the fact that for you and I, many times we pray and we ask God for specific things. And sometimes God answers those prayers, and other times he does not. Not because he can't, but simply because many times what we ask for is not what's best for us. So God many times intercedes on our behalf, and that's what we saw in this instance with Moses. And what happens here is Moses sought God's glory, man. He has this desperate desire to know the Lord. He wants to know him more intimately, more personally. He wants to be close to God. That's his heart's desire. So it's that heart that we're going to pick up with. Understand, that's kind of where he's coming from in his emotional connection. He's desiring to see God because he wants to love him, to connect with him, to be closer to him. He just has this desire to be right there, right? So as we pick up here in 34, understand that's the heart of Moses as we speak, as we, as we start here. Exodus 34, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. Okay? So, what we see here is Moses has just received his promise. He's excited about the promise. But not only is he excited about the fact that God's going to travel with him and that he's going to get this glimpse of God's glory, but, you know, at the same time, God's saying, hey, you know what, Moses, hey, before we do that, before we get you going, I want you to understand, I need you to to do something for me. You're going to make two stone tablets like the ones that I created for you, right? And it's interesting. The first time those tablets were created, they were created solely by God. He created them, he wrote on them, and he provided them with the Ten Commandments on them for Moses, right? And then what happens, right? This time, God's going to get Moses to contribute a little bit of sweat equity into the process, right? Now, why, why would God make Moses, right? Here's this, this man of God, right? Why would he put this labor and make this labor-intensive involvement for Moses that he has to create the stone tablets? Notice at the end of the verse what it says, right? And it says, that which thou breakest, which thou breakest, right? Now, what's interesting about that is the fact that he's saying, hey, you know what? You're going to do this. And what we're going to find out in our next verse is actually Moses is going to have to create these tablets in one day. Now, why, why, why put the pressure and the labor upon this man of God, this man of faith, this servant of the Lord? Well, guess what? Guess what? God's trying to teach him something in this instance. He's trying to simply help him understand. Look, he's making a point of the fact that, look, you chose to break them. You chose to break them. Let's look back at the circumstances, right, when this actually happened. The first set of of stone tablets have been delivered to Moses. He's carrying them down the mountain. And here in Exodus chapter number 32, verse 19, this is where they'll be broken. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, right, Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mountain. Boy, he comes down, and he's just like, wham, man, he shatters them. Now, does it look like it was God's will that Moses was directed to destroy the tablets? No, it doesn't. It's obvious here. What motivated Moses to break those tablets was his anger and his anger alone. Even though Moses is a good, he's a good, godly man who loves the Lord. But guess what? He has a weakness. You will see it in his past and as well in his future. He has a struggle with controlling his anger. He has an anger issue. We first see it in his early adulthood in Exodus chapter number 2, verses 11 and 12. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, right? He looks at his fellow Hebrews and he sees he has compassion upon the suffering that they're going through. And he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew one of his brethren. Now, obviously, understand Moses is about 40 years old at this point. Moses was raised in this environment. He was raised in Egypt. He spent his entire life being out and about around the people. He has witnessed this time and time again, but for whatever reason, this time he cares. And he cares so much, in fact, and it gets up so upset that he's going to actually react and do something about it. Verse 12, and it says, and he looked this way and that way. Make sure nobody's peeking. And when he saw that there was no one, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, I want you to understand, Moses was the adopted son of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh is absolute power 
in the country. He is a god to the Egyptian people. So what would happen is, here's the prince of Egypt. He did not need to kill this man. He could have simply said, stop what you're doing. He could have ordered the man to stop, and he would have stopped. But instead of doing that, he gets into such a rage and in his emotions that he kills the man. And this is what leads to his exile. He will be exiled to Midian, right, which is where he's going to spend 40 years And in that 40-year time period, God's going to teach him how to shepherd sheep because he's going to have to be ready to to have 40 years of shepherding these Israelites, right? And what I want you to understand is that when Moses received those Ten Commandments, there was one that probably really stood out to him. Number six says, thou shalt not kill. And Moses would have had a flashback to, you know what? Wow. When he heard that one and saw that one written down, man, that's me. What we see is that Moses' killing of the Egyptian was not God's will. It was absolutely fueled by Moses, and it was his decision and his decision alone, fueled by his emotions. And what we see here is also God can take the decisions that we make that are bad and actually use them and intertwine them into his plan for our lives. It wasn't God's will that this man die, but this was the thing that God that was actually used to get Moses out of, out of, the, out of Egypt and into Midian so that this process could take place. But what we find and what we talked about in the past is in Romans, we learn that God can take good things and bad things and use them for his glory. Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, right? This is for his children, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God had a purpose for Moses' life, and he used this bad choice to actually intertwine that into God's plan. So many of us, right, we can look at that verse and we go, boy, oh boy, man, I can share stories of how I've made stupid choices or the things that I've done that I know were wrong, and yet God still used it for my good and for his glory. Incredibly. Now, we can certainly see that's true here in Moses' life. What we'll find also is at the same time, Our sinful choices, even though God may weave them into his plan, they can also have some really hard circumstances or consequences that come along with them. What we find here with Moses is consider the fact that in this this first time, whenever he commits this murder, we don't really see him facing a whole lot of consequences from the sin. But what we're going to see through Moses' struggle with his flesh, his struggle with losing his temper, boy, And reacting in violence, what we'll see is there's going to be some serious consequences coming for him. And 39 years from this time, there's going to be some really heavy ones. And let's jump forward into Numbers chapter number 20. This is 39 years ahead of where we are now. Numbers Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. Okay. So, then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation of the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died. Okay, this is Miriam, is, is Aaron and um, Moses' older sister. And there was buried. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together, together against Moses and against Aaron. Again, we have seen these rebellious, stiff-necked Israelites. Instead of trusting God, they get mad, they get angry, and boy, sure enough, here we are. They're literally right at the border of the promised land, and they're going to get upset at Moses. And it says, and the people chode with Moses, saying, would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? And why have we have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we, our, we and our cattle die there? No faith whatsoever. Verse number five. And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into in unto this evil place? 
It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. Look, there's nothing here. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, right? Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. I want you to pay attention. He says, Speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. Again, remember we talked about the fact that the rock is a picture of Jesus. Notice that this, this rock does not give of its water, it gives of his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts to drink. Okay, so he gets instructions from God. Moses says, okay. And Moses took the rod. Sure enough, verse number nine. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. So far, so good. Well done, Moses. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. Man, right on target. That's exactly what God instructed him to. And he said unto them, uh uh-oh, here we go. Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? He is not happy. Notice what happens. And Moses lifted up his hand. What was he doing? He's supposed to speak to the rock. And with his rod, he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Notice that in spite of Moses' disobedience, what you'll find is God still meets the need. And the Lord spake unto Moses, look at this in verse 12, Moses spoke unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believe not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is to Aaron and to Moses. This is the water Notice he says this is a water of Meribah. That word Meribah means contention, contention or conflict. Because the children of Israel strove with the Lord and he was sanctified in them. Verse number 24, jumping down to there. Notice this, this is Aaron's fate. Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. So what we see here is the fact that not only is Moses affected, by his sinful choices and by his behavior, his brother is also affected. Because guess what? Aaron, shortly after this, literally right after this time, Aaron's going to die. Aaron will die. They're going to take his clothing off him. They're going to put it on Eleazar. Eleazar is going to become the high priest, and Aaron's going to die. Now, as a side note, we notice also the fact that even though God tells him, look, you're not going to go in, what I want you to see is the fact that God loves his creation. God loves us. And because of his love, Right? Because of his mercy and because of his, his appreciation for Moses' service, what I want you to understand is the fact that God's still going to let Moses look into the promised land. He's going to let him look across the border, but he will not enter. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses, verse number 6. Right, Verse number 6, and it says, And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it, with thine eyes, but, that, but thou shalt not go over thither. This is a year after Aaron has died. In verse number five, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of God. In verse number six, and he buried him. God buries Moses. Now, that's an important point that you need to understand. In a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. What you'll notice when it says he buried him, 
God buries Moses. This is the only person that we have in history that ever God buried, and there was a specific reason. What you'll find is it says at the end of that verse, no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. So God not only buried him, but he hid him from the rest of the world. And when we study the book of Revelation one day, we will understand there's a great significance to the reason why Moses' body was hidden. We'll understand that one day. We don't want to have time to go on that today, and that's a whole other message, but there's a very specific reason why that takes place. And as the Lord continues, right, instructing Moses, what we're going to see is he's fast-tracking them to get them back on course to do the work of God. Verse number two in our scripture. And it says, and be ready in the morning and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai and present thyself there to me in the top of the mountain. And what you need to understand is the fact that Moses is around 80 years old at this time. So not only does he have to go out and work all day long to find a place to, to get the stones, then he's got to cut the stones, then he has to shape the stones, then he has to flatten these stones so that God can write upon them. Verse number three, and no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mountain, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. Moses is going up. He was up for 40 days before. Guess what? He's going up for another 40 days. This time, Joshua's not going to be anywhere near him. He's doing this on his own, right? So we understand it's on top of this mountain. He's going to climb to the top here. He's going to have to carry the tablets. So not only has he made the tablets, now this 80-year-old man wearing sandals has got to climb a mountain, and as he's climbing this mountain, he's going to be carrying these big old stone tablets. You understand Mount Sinai is about 8,000 feet. Today, if you were to go there, it would take you about four or five hours to hike, not carrying stone tablets, up the mountain. But he's supposed to get up first thing in the morning and do that. Verse number four. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai. And as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. Man, if I was Moses, I would be wishing really, really hard that I had not broken that first set. I was like, man, you know, it's like I, I'm imagining Moses as he's talking and walking up the mountain carrying these things. Dude, when am I going to control my anger, man? I mean, what the, what, what's wrong with me? You know, I could have just... Walked in, I could have been mad, and you know, I could have just set him down, and then, but no, you know, I just had to be dramatic and shatter him on the ground to make a point. Hey, what's wrong with me, right? Uh, he's rethinking himself. It's like God is teaching him something here. He's rethinking his choice, teaching him a lesson about, hey, you know what? Maybe I don't need to fall prey to my anger, right? So there's a difference between anger. And what's, which is driven in emotionally, it's an emotional outburst that's fueled by rage, and there's what's called righteous anger, right? And that righteous anger is in response to ungodliness. What we're going to do is we're going to look at really a comparison between the two. When we're in anger in our flesh and we're in anger in our spirit. James 1, 19 and 20 says this, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. We talk about this all the time, be having ears to hear. Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to to wrath. And the part I really want you to pay attention to is this next verse in verse number 20. Okay? Listen to this. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The, wor- the, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So our fleshly emotional anger never honors God, right? Even if it feels justified. Man, he really had it coming to him. Do you understand? Dude, that was so wrong. Hey, I'm not saying it's not wrong, but our anger that's in our flesh is never going to honor God. It is, it, it, if we do it our way and we feed our flesh, it isn't going to honor God. And guess what? It actually is going to hurt the cause of Christ. 
That's always going to be a truth. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27 says this, Be angry, notice this next part, and sin not. So there's a way to be angry and not sin. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. So if I am angry and I sin, I'm giving place to the devil. What that means is this fleshly driven anger, guess what it does? It opens the door to the influence of Satan in our lives. It absolutely opens the door. How many of us have ever heard terms like this, right? Blind rage. I was in a fit of anger. Boy, you know what? I'm so angry, I can't see straight. I am in a blind rage, right? Every one of those lost control, right? And if we don't have control, guess what we're doing? We're giving control to something else. It's this type of anger that always leaves us filled with regret. I think all of us can think of times when we have said things or done things that we know, we know it was wrong. We said things, and as soon as it came out of our mouth, we're filled with regret because it's fueled by our emotions. It's not led of God. So there is a type of anger that is absolutely destructive. That type of anger, anger, guess what it does? It opens up the door. It gives place to the devil. That when we talk about give place, what it means is give authority or give license to the devil. We're giving him authority and license to lead us to sin. That is the whole goal for us not to do, right? So in falling into our anger, we open up a door and we make it such a dangerous place for us. Our anger in our flesh always, always, always seeks retribution. We are looking to get a pound of flesh, and we're going to react in our anger, right? But then there's another type of anger, right? It's led of the Spirit, and it actually is led not of the flesh. We would call it many times righteous indignation, right? Righteous indignations. It's in response to something that blasphemes against God. It's something in defense of the Lord. And we think about this, and I give you an example we're going to look at, which is Jesus when he goes into the temple. Man, remember, he goes in there, and he's flipping over tables, and he's, he's going against the money changers. In John chapter number 2, verses 14 through 16, there's no doubt he's angry in this moment. And he says, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, meaning he just made himself a whip, He drove them all out of the temple, drove them out, meaning he's whipping the air, he's striking, and he's trying to scare them out, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Not only is he mad and he's straightening them out and drawing the people, but he's flipping over their stuff, man. He's flowing the tables over and said unto them that sold sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Understand, he's not punishing for the sake of the fact that he wants to hurt them. What we find is this anger, this spiritually fueled, it's spiritually fueled in defense of God's character, God's people, God's word, whatever, right? But what we see is it's always for the purpose of repentance. He's trying to help them to see what's wrong with their actions so they will make a proper choice. It's revealing error. It's bringing punishment for the purpose of redirecting people back to the Lord. That is the goal. So one fulfills our will and the other fulfills God's will, right? It's easy to distinguish between the two. So as Moses perhaps contemplates the error of his ways, (laughs) he's exhausted and he's carried these tables all the way up. Guess what? God then appears and he comes in the form of a cloud. Verse number five, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood 
with him there and proclaim the name of the Lord. So God is about to fulfill his promise to Moses. And what you'll see is it says that he comes down in a cloud. That's representative of God's presence. We've seen it time and time again throughout the scriptures. It's covered the mountain in Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Sinai back in Exodus 19, verse 16, we saw it cover the mountain. Then we went, it went with them by day. It traveled with the Israelites in Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22. It stood at the tent of Moses in Exodus 33, verses 9 and 10. Then it filled Solomon's temple with glory in 2 Chronicles 7, 2. It, it overshadows Mary at the conception of Jesus in Luke 1, 35. It was present at the transfiguration of Jesus, which we studied last week, right? And we saw that in verse Luke 9, verses 34 through 35. And it will be present at the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, 7. Notice that, uh, and, and notice in this verse that it also says something else. It says that God stood with him. God stood with him. Now, in order to stand, you need legs, do you not? You've got to stand upon legs. So what we see here is what's called a pre-incarnate Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ. What that means is that what's happened here is God is actually appearing on earth in a physical form prior to his first coming by way of the virgin birth. He is appearing on earth. We see an example of this in Genesis chapter number three, verse number eight. It says, and they heard the voice of the Lord God, notice this next word, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. In order to walk, you must have legs. We see it again. We see a pre-incarnate Christ again in Genesis 18. What's going to happen here is Abraham is looking out across the plains. And what he does, he sees there in the plains of Mamre, he sees three men. And one of them is God. He calls him Lord specifically. And this is before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then again, in Daniel chapter number three, we see another incredible appearance of God, this time inside of a furnace, right? With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter three, verses 24 and 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king was a stony. That king, Nebuchadnezzar, he is a type of the Antichrist. It says, and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto him, King, said unto the king, True, O king. Look what he says here. Love it, love it, love it. Verse 25. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. Look, they're not being burned. They're not dead. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Man, praise God. So in fact, there are over 50 different, close to 50 different occurrences in the Old Testament examples of Christ appearing in physical form. So a pre-incarnate Christ, right? Moses most certainly recognized in this moment what's getting ready to happen, man. He hears God proclaiming his name, man. Can you imagine, right? If you're Moses, he is wide-eyed, dude. He is like, wow, are you kidding me? He's excited. He's totally ready to hear what God's got for him, to see what God has for him. He's just heard God proclaim his, 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 his name, and now what happens is he's in preparation, ready to see something amazing. And I would wager to say to you that his exhaustion, that all his, his fatigue has vanished away in preparation for the fact that he's getting ready to see God reveal himself to him. And remember what his request was. He says, I beseech thee, Show me thy glory. I want to see with my eyes the glory of God. That's his request. Moses' heart is to know the Lord deeply, intimately, and personally, right? He's ready to see something 
That's going to strengthen his faith and relationship with God. So with his heart pounding and excitement, here we go into verse number 6. Okay, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, and the third and the fourth generation. And there are people there. Hear that last part where it talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. They go, oh my goodness, God's cursing the people. No, this is the sins of the parents, right? The parents, what happens? Think about this. There are people that are raised in abusive homes and what happens? That same abuse that they experienced in their home, guess what they'll do? They'll carry it on into their family and actually have it go through their lineage. It is a curse of the sins of man. But God gives in this instance, he talks, he gives a ninefold description of himself as he goes through this. Instead of what he sees, it's actually what Moses hears that's really going to impact him, right? You see, if we know God, meaning that we, we know his, his character, right? We understand his attributes. We know who he is because of our personal relationship with him, because we, we've heard his promises. You and I, we can see his glory through those words, Interestingly enough, when we notice this, God warns us, in fact, in Scripture, not to base our faith based upon what we see, but based upon what we know. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. For we walk by faith, and the specific, not by sight. Not based upon what you see, but what you know, Right? Last week, we examined how the the glory of the Lord, right? We talked about that. And we found ourselves up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And what's going to happen is they're going to witness something that's going to put them on their faces. It's absolutely overwhelming, right? They see something spectacular, no doubt about it. And what I want to do is we're going to look at Peter is actually going to give us, he's going to speak of his experience in 2 Peter verses 1. Uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And what's relevant here, and what I want you to be paying attention to is, there's a difference between what we see and what we know, okay? Listen to this, verse 1, or verse 16, I'm sorry, Second Peter 1. It says, for we have not followed cunning devised fables. He says, look, what we're telling you are not a bunch of stories. He says, and we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We told you the truth, but listen to this but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What I want you to know is this Peter is talking about being up on the Mount of Transfiguration. In that moment that we saw last week that we studied in Luke, what we're looking at here, he says, an eyewitness of his majesty, right? We saw it in person. Verse number 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. Which is, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, remember they, they heard the voice of God come down in that cloud? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? Up on that mount of transfiguration, verse number 18. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard, and we were with him in the holy mount. He tells us exactly where he was. Verse 19, we have also, this is very, very important, right? We just talked about what he saw, but listen to this. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. He says, we have what we saw, and we have a sure word of prophecy. We have the word of God, right? What we know in the word of God, we're going to trust that more than what we saw, because guess what? We can't always trust what we see. Whereunto 
You do well that you take heed. Listen, as unto a light that shineth unto a dark place. This is, this is important. This is a light. This is an important thing for you to understand that we need to hold on to the word of God until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. What that means is my job is not to look at the Bible and go, well, I think it means this. What we do is we allow the spirit of God to reveal truth to us, not our own intellect. Verse number 21, it says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. This didn't come as stories from men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We can trust God's word because guess what? God wrote it. It is a truth that does not change. It is immutable, just like God. So what we see here is that the scripture, God's word, is more dependable than what we see with our own eyes. Our eyes can fool us. We can see things that we did not necessarily see. We can believe something's true, but it's not be true just based upon what we saw. But guess what? The truth of God's word does not change. So what we see here is the fact that what's happening is Moses hears God's words. He hears God's words rather than what he sees. It's, 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 this is very important. And see, the same is true for us. We may see things in our life, but bottom line is Moses has to trust what he hears because we have to remember the fact that guess what? He can't see at this point. Remember he told him, God told him he's going to cover his face. So he can't see. All he can do is hear. Our spiritual growth and our maturity as Christians, it's not going to come through signs and wonders. It's not going to come through miracles, right? Consider all those, right? And there's instance after instance, but I want you to think about the 5,000, right? The feeding of the 5,000. What happened was Jesus fed them. They got in the boat, and they went all the way over to Capernaum. And what happened was that crowd, guess what? They went this way, and the crowd went this way around the edge. And guess what they did? They met in Capernaum. And when Jesus started laying out to them, guess what? When you follow me, this is what it really means, and this is the truth of the word of God. Guess what happened to that 5,000? They disappeared. Because it says when he finished speaking, there were 12 standing there. So those that have their faith built upon what they see, it has no legs to it. It's not going to last. It's those that hold on to the truth that will grow. So he says, bottom line is, he lists his attributes. God lists what he, who he is, right? He lists who he is. It's basically like he's saying this. If you want to experience my glory, just listen, Moses. Just listen, Moses, right? So while Moses' face is covered, God passes by, and all he can do is listen, right? He listens, and God proclaims himself. And this is what God says in that ninefold list. He says, the Lord God, this is what he calls himself, the Lord God. He says, I, this is the almighty, sovereign God of the universe, the Lord God. Merciful. He says, merciful. That means full of mercy to any and all, right? He says he's gracious, gracious, loving those who don't deserve it. And that's what, that's all of us, right? Long-suffering, he says, patiently suffering offense in order to forgive and to restore. Abundant in goodness. Oh, man, doing good only. Expressing love to everyone. That's God, man. Abundant in truth. Always honest. Always truthful. Keeping mercy for thousands, man. Keeping mercy for thousands. That means having boundless love for the, for the world, man. Boundless mercy for the world. And this is forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Willing to forgive any and all offense. Willing to forgive any and all offense. Praise God on that one, man. That'll get your hand in the air. Praise God that he'll forgive any and all offense. And last, he says, will by no means clear the guilty. Meaning, you know what? If you're guilty of your sins and you will not repent, God is a good 
fair and righteous judge, and you will stand accountable to him. Man, this is God's glory, man. It's in the words. It's in the words, man. Do we have ears to hear? Are we hearing what God's saying, right? It's not a point of what He's showing Moses. It's what He's telling Moses. And Moses needs to hear, man. If we have ears to hear, right? We look at this. These words were chosen by God Himself to describe Himself, to describe His glory. Listen to them again, man. He said, the Lord God, the Almighty, Sovereign God, merciful, Gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness, abundant in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, everything, willing by no means clear, will by no means clear the guilty, being that fair and righteous judge, right? My question to you is, is this how we see God in our mind's eye? How do we see Him? Do we have a distorted view Do we have a religious view? Do we have a a man-created view? Do we have an experiential view that's our own? You know, I see God the way I want to see Him. No, God tells us who He is. He describes Himself to us. He shows us His glory in words. And you and I have to have ears to hear. And it's very interesting that Moses has turned so he cannot see. And God proclaims His glory, doesn't display His glory. He shows Him his glory. Let me tell you this, man. God is worthy of our praise. No doubt about it, man. If you're a child of God, he is worthy of our praise. And we lose sight of it every single day. We get distracted from it every single day. The devil does not want God to receive glory. He wants to get glory for himself. That's the reason why he fell, because of the pride, that desire to be like the most high. And you know what? He deserves nothing but our contempt, and God deserves absolute love and 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 and, and dedication is the word I'm looking for. And I'm telling you, when we put our eyes on the world, we're taken away from the Lord and we're given to Satan, man. Let's not give him any credit in this world. Let's give it all to God, man. But understand, we don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his provision, yet he provides. We don't deserve his patience, yet every day he's patiently waiting on us. Even when we're in a mess, Even when we're absolutely off track, even though our head is in the sand, man, we're so lost, we're so caught up in the world, and yet He patiently waits on us. That's long-suffering because we're doing things against God, and yet He holds back, and He waits on us. And then, man, we're not deserving of His forgiveness. Absolutely not. But yet He forgives. And we're (laughs) we're not worthy of His care, yet God cares for us. Incredibly. Those things are always true of God. And none of us deserve any of them. And yet, He offers them every day. His mercies are new every day. And He offers them to those who love Him. But you know what's amazing? He offers them to those who hate Him as well. To those who love Him and to those who hate Him. And you know what? There may be a time in your life or in my life where we hated Him. Where we cursed God's name. We didn't turn to him. We didn't live for him. We lived for ourselves. And we filled ourselves with fleshly desires and lusts. But what God, but God, because of his long suffering, because of his patience, because of his mercy, because of his grace. For by grace he is saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, God reached out to us. He didn't deserve it, but he reached out to us. How amazing is that? And the fact is, you know, 
God's love is for the world. John 3, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Just that phrase right there, man. For God so loved the world. Not only specific individuals, the whole world, the good and bad, the evil and the kind, right? But he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He offers the gift of salvation. He offers his life for any and all who will believe. In verse number eight, look at this reaction. And Moses made haste. That means, man, he, got, he was busy. He was hurried. And he says, and he bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. Notice he didn't go and stare. He didn't want to look. Just based upon what he heard, that's all he needed because he could fall flat on his face and even knowing he's not worthy to look at God and knowing the fact that, you know what? He deserves his worship. He deserves him to worship him, man. He knew, not based upon the fact that what he saw with his eyes, but what he heard with his ears, right? And there's no mention, if you notice, there's no mention at all of what he saw. No mention at all. It's only what he heard. And see, look at that. Look at his reaction. Is to fall flat on his face. And guys, you know what? <laughs> if you've had ears to hear today, if we've had ears to hear today, I'd say that based upon what we've heard, it is time for us. It is high time for us to worship him. To worship him. To be thankful. To look at God and realize the fact how good he's been to us. Because let me tell you this, man, he alone is worthy. God loves you right where you are. If you're a child of God, it's by his grace and by his love that you are his child. And if you're not his child, today that can change. God loves you right where you are. And I promise you, he's ready, willing, and able to receive you, to restore you, and to give you a life with him and let you experience his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity you've given us, Lord, to be in your house. Thank you for your message. God, helping us, Lord, to see his glory, Lord, and then to worship him. God, thank you that we get to worship you. Thank you, Lord God, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, help us not be distracted by the things of the world. Help us, God, to receive from you what we need from the message, God, and help us to apply it in our hearts and lives that we might truly worship you today through the way we live our lives, through the things that we say, through the, through the witness that we share with the world around us, God, through the way we stand against evil and the way we stand for truth. God, help us to worship you. And for those of you that may be here today, and you say, you know what, Pastor, I don't, I don't have a relationship with God. I want to. It's not that I don't care about God. It's not that I don't want to know him. But you know what? I just don't, I don't, I don't have a relationship with him. Guys, 18 years ago, I'd never been in church my entire life. And when somebody asked me a question, they said, if God forbid, if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And I searched my heart. And honestly, I responded. And I said, I hope so. And you can hope or you can know. The Bible says you can know, right? Whosoever, calls, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God gives a promise. And guess what? Right where you are, he's given that same promise to you. No matter where you are, if you're in this country, if you're in another country or somewhere around the world, you're watching this recorded, it does not matter. This is not about a religious ceremony. This is not about a magic prayer. There's not the words that are going to matter. The Bible says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made into salvation. 
right? So with the heart, God looks upon the heart. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. So as God looks in your heart today, and if you're broken and you say, you know what, Lord, I know I need you. This message is spoken to my heart. And you know what? I want to love you. I want to live with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be like Moses, God. I want to see your glory through your word. And I can assure you that his glory is available to you today. You can receive it. But you need the very first, very first step you need to take is to receive him as your savior. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So right there where you are, he loves you right exactly as you are. And because of his long suffering, because of his patience, because of his grace, because of his mercy, he offers his hand to you right now and he offers you the gift of eternal life. And my question to you is, will you receive it? Will you receive it? Because I'm telling you right now, he loves you. And he wants you to be his child. He created you for a purpose greater than you've ever understood. And when you receive him, you can then worship him. But I want to give you an opportunity right now to receive him, to pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart and to save your soul. If you've never done that, I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to give you an opportunity. I want you to pray with me. You're going to repeat after me, but remember, it's not the words of the prayer that'll do anything for you. It's the heart behind the words. So right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Right where you are, no matter where you are. I don't care if somebody's around listening to you. It does not matter. You listen, man. This God's speaking in your heart, and he's giving you a chance. You're not promised tomorrow. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you've received him, and he's yours, praise God. But if you've never received him, or maybe you've been playing games all this time, and you've been religious, but you've never received him, this is your chance. We're not promised tomorrow. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me. Remember, you're not speaking to me. It's not a ceremony. It's you're speaking to God. Repeat after me with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for all the things I've done wrong, for those that I've hurt, and Lord, for the times I've stood against you. I'm sorry. God, I ask you right now in the best way I know how to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins and to save my soul. Lord, you died for me. I want to live for you. Help me now, Lord. Thank you for saving me. And Lord, I pray that I'll see you in heaven one day. I look forward to that moment. In Jesus' name, amen.